Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we will be reviewing obesity, newer concepts and therapy. Obesity is a common, serious, and chronic disease. It affects adults and children. It has a significant impact in your general health and is associated with significant diseases. Obesity is a common, serious, and a chronic disease. It affects both adults and children. It is associated with poor mental health outcomes and a reduced quality of life. It's associated with leading causes of death, including diabetes, heart disease, stroke, and some forms of cancer. The prevalence of diabetes in the United States is increasing. In 2017 to March 2022, the United States' obesity prevalence was 41.9%. Obesity seems to affect some groups more than others. Non-Hispanic black males, 49.9%, had the highest age-adjusted prevalence of obesity, followed by Hispanic adults at 45.6%. Non-Hispanic white adults were at 41.4%, and non-Hispanic Asian adults at 16.1%. Our guest today is Dr. Josh Thaler. Dr. Thaler is an associate professor with the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, Department of Internal Medicine, the University of Washington School of Medicine. Dr. Thaler is an associate professor at the UW Diabetes Institute, and his focus of both clinical work and research is obesity. Welcome, Dr. Thaler. Appreciate your joining us today on this episode, and I guess we should start with looking at obesity. Obesity seems to have evolved in our concept of what is obesity over a number of years. Why don't you review a little bit about the difference between somebody being, quote, overweight and somebody being obese? What are the standards that define somebody as having obesity? Thank you for having me here today. Obesity is defined medically by an index we call the body mass index, which is the weight divided by the height squared. So it's basically trying to account for 
how large or tall someone is into how much they should be expected to weigh and sort of try to control that. And we set the line at 25 for where it switches from what's considered normal weight to overweight. And then when you cross 30, it becomes obese. And then there's some categories even above that of, of sort of severe obesity. But basically it's BMI over 25 or 25 to 30 for overweight and over 30 for obesity. And there's controversy about this and BMI is a crude tool. That is, that is the one that's most widely used throughout the medical literature and really the scientific literature as well. So when we look at obesity, I know that there seems to be some propensity for it based upon some genetics. Also, it seems to have evolved in a concept of socioeconomic status. The more you eat bad food, the more likely you are to have obesity in populations that don't have access to vegetables and good food and eat things that are prepackaged seem to have a higher degree of obesity in the population. So, you know, is it, let's start with the genetics. If somebody has parents that are in the BMI, body mass index of obesity, are they destined to be obese? That's a tricky one. I mean, I mean, I don't think we can say with certainty that someone is destined to be obese. We don't have a single sort of test that we can do when someone is born that would give us a readout that says, absolutely, this is what's going to happen to you. What we do know is that uh, obesity is, by many estimates, at least 50%, if not more, based on inherited genes. So the susceptibility is driven in large part by what you inherit. So what your parents' BMI is will impact your risk for developing obesity over the course of your lifespan. However, those genes or that susceptibility is being acted on by the environment. You shouldn't take the fatalistic view that I got these genes, I'm susceptible, there's no hope. It's more that there are people that will struggle more, that basically are at more at risk and therefore more, unfortunately, perhaps need to be more cognizant of how the environment is impacting their risk and and others who, and everyone knows someone like this, who can eat whatever they want or do whatever they want and seem to never gain weight. And so a lot of those things are genetically programmed, but that doesn't mean that everyone who has obese parents is going to end up obese. And it also doesn't mean that everyone who has lean parents is doesn't have to worry about this. That's clearly not the case. So somebody who has parents that are not obese is not necessarily immune from developing obesity if they adopt a lifestyle. What are some of the issues in diet that, you know, I mentioned earlier that socioeconomic factors predominate, but what are some of the issues in diet that really seem to promote obesity? Well, again, that's a, you could have a whole hour, more than hour, you could have many hours on that subject alone, which is sort of the impact of nutrition, of macronutrient composition, of intake, and then various components to our modern diets that have been postulated to impact 
body weight gain at the individual level as well as at the whole population level. And so there's no sort of simple answer in some ways. So we know that obesity has existed for hundreds of years, if not longer. I mean, there's certainly evidence in in populations from a long time ago that there were segments of the population that had obesity. So on the other hand, the prevalence has obviously increased dramatically really since the 1970s, 80s, at least in this country, and that's fairly true worldwide. And so that's led to the speculation, or, or at least the hypothesis, that there's something about the modern diet or modern living or the combination that is promoting obesity, again, in susceptible individuals. But genetics presumably haven't changed in hundreds of years. And so that susceptibility has always been there, but now it's being realized. It's coming to fruition. People are, the whole population is, is gaining weight because of these changes. And so many different ideas have come up. So the idea, like you said, of sort of processed food, so not not eating kind of whole natural foods, but rather this modern processing that has made food much cheaper than it used to be has as a negative consequence that it causes people to overeat and to gain weight. And there is some reasonable evidence to support that idea. Um, in fact, there was a nice study by Kevin Hall a few years back, who's an NIH researcher, very well known in the field of looking at human responses to nutrition and energy expenditure and so on. And they did a nice study where they did a very controlled a delivery of an ultra-processed versus a non-processed or low-processed diet uh, and actually saw and matched it carefully for a lot of the components of diet, including carbohydrate content, fat content, et cetera, fiber even. So those things were all matched, um, but just the type of diet and the way it was processed was different. And indeed, the people on the ultra-processed diet gained weight actually over the course of the several weeks of the study versus the people on the low-processed diet lost weight, even though they were calorie-matched diets. They were, in theory, calorie-matched. They were allowed to eat as much as they want. And so, in fact, the people on the ultra-processed diet ate more over time so that that really accounted for their weight gain. And the idea, therefore, is that there's something about processing that either fools our systems or somehow interfaces with you know, our natural regulation to cause us to overeat as compared with just the the sort of normal what what used to be what wouldn't would consider a normal regular diet from you know a hundred years ago so that has some validity there's been thoughts about high fructose corn syrup that's often thrown around because that entered our food supply in large at a large scale again in the sort of similar time frame 70s 80s the data for that is not as strong, I would say. There's certainly some evidence that sugar-sweetened beverages, which that includes high-fructose corn syrup-sweetened beverages, have had an impact on weight gain, again, across the population. And there have been efforts such as taxes on those, you know, adding a tax for beverages, which is true in our region as well, as a way to try to give people a disincentive to buy those things. There's some evidence on a certain small scale, so like drinks and that kind of situation, that 
sweetening or high fructose corn syrup may trigger overconsumption. But I think on the mass scale that that's the sole culprit. I think there, there really isn't a lot of support for that. So there's a variety of ways in which nutrition can impact. And there are lots of theories about how that works, but we really don't know. It's very difficult to design trials that really can isolate specific dietary components and yet still have real world applicability and, you know, can be done over long periods of time. It's a very, it's a hard field to do science in. For uh, listeners, I direct everybody to an earlier episode that we did with Marion Newhauser on diet. For those who have not listened to that episode, she was one of the authors for the 2015 to 2020 edition of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, which is free. You can download it. The Dietary Guidelines for Americans is something that is put out every five years and updated by true experts, and they are not bending to any influence from industry. So it is a pure science, and there are a lot of guidelines for diets that are healthy and how to eat and what to eat. And then it also has breakdowns for obesity. So uh, if you are a listener and you want more information on a particular diet, listen to that episode. Let's talk a little bit then about the other end, besides what goes in, but the energy that goes out and activity. So where are we with obesity and activity? How are those associated? That's also, as with much of this field, that's also somewhat controversial. So we haven't really talked about it, but we know that, you know, organisms are designed to match energy intake. That is what you eat with energy expenditure, what you burn. And so in a sort of basal state, in the sort of normal situation, those two parameters are pretty tightly matched, which is why body weight doesn't vary wildly from moment to moment or day to day, because we actually do a very good job of matching our intake to our expenditure. And so one might think, therefore, that if if someone is gaining weight, that perhaps they have a slow metabolism, right? That that might reflect the fact that they burn less calories than would be expected. And in general, that's not what's seen. So when you look across populations and you measure energy expenditure, so metabolic rate, and put that on an axis, and on the other axis, you put body weight, they basically are directly related such that the heavier you are, actually the higher your energy expenditure is, the more you burn, not the less. So if anything, it's the opposite. Now, there is a lot of spread. So individuals vary considerably from that sort of straight line relationship. But in general, we can't say in general that people who gain weight have a slow metabolism. Now, that's just sort of their resting metabolism. But similarly, it's not clear cut that, you know, anyone who has obesity must be inactive by definition. That isn't really the case. It is true that over time, as people gain weight, they often, as they get into that category of obesity and as they age, they can develop a lot of the diseases, we call them comorbidities is the sort of technical term, that are associated with obesity. The reason why the medical community cares about this really is because of those other diseases that can come as a consequence. And among those are difficulties with joints and pain 
And so that can limit activity. And so certainly over time with weight gain, one can see reduced activity and that will contribute to further weight gain. So it becomes a kind of negative vicious cycle. I see patients every week in a weight clinic at at Harborview Medical Center as part of the University of Washington. And there are some patients that I see who, you know, were relatively, you know, normal weight or maybe slightly overweight. And then at some point in their life, they had some injury or some accident or something that completely derailed their level of activity that they had maintained up to that point. And then they see a sort of period of weight gain over the following years. And so that is one profile of patients that I do see that have obesity, but I wouldn't say that that's like the majority. So if you look across the country, you know, the rates of obesity are upwards of 40%. Uh, overweight is another 30 to 35%. So two-thirds to three-fourths of the population are overweight and obese. That isn't accounted for by a lot of inactivity. There is some thought, again, in terms of the fact that obesity has developed over the last, you know, four or five decades, that that's partly due to the built environment, to the fact that people don't walk anymore, they drive everywhere, or perhaps they live in suburbs, so they have to commute. So there's far less physical activity associated with going to work and associated with life. And so there is some thought about, you know, we sit, we're too sedentary, both because of, you know, our work and and again, the way the environment has developed. And that may be a contributor. It's very hard to test that hypothesis, but that is thought to be one of the, one of the components. The last thing I'll say on this is that there have been many studies looking at whether physical activity, so exercise or some form of it can work as a weight loss strategy. And in general, the answer, unfortunately, is no in a vacuum. So basically, if one embarks on a a physical activity regimen to amp up or increase their level of, of daily, you know, calorie burn, presumably through this activity, if there's no effort to match or to watch calories, in general, a person will eat to compensate for what they burned. And so the weight loss is actually fairly minimal. So in most studies with exercise alone as an arm of the trial, the exercise alone arm will generally only lose 1%, 2%, really very little and often not very sustained, even when they're fairly compliant, even when they're really doing the activity and you can measure that and show that they're doing it. It As a standalone, it doesn't work. As an adjunct, as an add-on to diet approaches and other things, it's very effective and it's very good at helping maintain weight loss and promoting it as on your weight loss journey. So we always have it as part of our of our strategy, but just so people understand as a standalone, it generally doesn't work. As we review the issues in exercise, so we're not saying don't exercise. Almost every episode I've had are... Um, Someone has mentioned the benefits of exercise, whether it's depression, whether it's mental illness, whether it's cardiovascular. I I mean, it seems like everything we do is benefited by exercise. And I would agree that exercise has many weight-independent benefits, lots, probably more than almost any sort of straightforward, accessible, free, if you will, 
lifestyle change that we can make. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying to suggest that exercise is not a good idea. It is. I was being very specific to say that this is only this initial idea that if you exercise a lot, you can lose weight. And that has actually been studied in a very controlled way. And it's clear that it helps when it's combined with other elements, but as a standalone, it isn't. But it certainly benefits heart health and mental health and a lot of other things, even as a standalone. And as we look at then some of the other reasons for obesity, you have lab that is looking into, I'll just say the brain, though you're looking at specific areas in the brain. Why don't you talk a little bit about this new emerging concept of control of diabetes from the central nervous system versus a peripheral issue? Right. So it's been appreciated actually for a number of decades that the systems that control energy balance, so how much one takes in and how much one burns, are reside largely in the brain. And so the brain receives signals from the body and from the environment that tell it how much energy is desired. So we perceive that as hunger, for example, and that drives us to eat. And the brain actually integrates that information, uses that information, and also gives information out to the body to how much energy to burn. It is critical for that matching process that goes on all the time unconsciously. And a lot of that is coordinated through several hormones, most famously leptin, which is a hormone secreted by fat tissue. And basically in proportion to how much fat there is, it sets kind of the level of overall hunger and metabolism based on need. So when there's a large amount of weight loss and fat mass is reduced. So for example, if someone is fasting for a long period of time or is in a famine or what have you and has lost a lot of weight, their leptin levels will drop. And that's a signal to the brain to eat more and to slow metabolism so that the weight can be regained. And the same occurs in the opposite direction. And so ever since leptin's discovery back in the 90s and we've begun to appreciate where it's acting in the brain and all the molecular pathways involved in how this works and all the other components that are also providing input to the brain about energy needs and both in and out. So there've been a lot of efforts both to sort of figure out the genes that are involved in all this, as well as how the system works in a normal setting, how it works in the obese setting, and trying to understand how one goes from sort of what we consider regular weight to the obese state. How do these systems change or are they failing? So where is the key element that we need to intervene on to try to help people um, lose weight or at least maintain regular weight? And so one thing we've learned, so for example, with the genetic studies is that most of the genes involved do in fact show up in the brain. So that fits with this idea that the brain is kind of the central regulator of these processes. So that's consistent. And over time, we've identified different populations of neurons, as well as some of the neighboring cells, those are called glia, that are involved 
in regulating both normal intake, so just meal to meal, what's happening and when you feel full and, and when you feel hungry, as well as over long scales, like what controls weight. And so there's no one right theory yet. Like we really don't know yet what it is that drives the system away from what I said is this good matching of in and out such that body weight stays stable to a situation where weight is gained over time. We have some theories. And so one of the theories, which my lab works on, as well as many others, is this idea that there's something about the diet and maybe weight gain itself. So this also could be a feed for, again, another sort of a vicious cycle situation, that there's something about either components of the diet or overeating itself or weight gain as well that causes an inflammatory response in the brain, somewhat like the inflammation that people are familiar with and sort of arthritis or any other kind of inflammatory situation. Not so strong that it like makes you sick, but strong enough that it makes the neurons, the cells that are controlling these processes not work the way they should. And so we think that if you can limit that inflammatory process, you can restore some of the proper functioning, the sensing of the nutrients and the sensing of these signals to tell you when to eat and when not to, and how much to burn. And so we and others are looking at methods to unpack where the inflammation is happening and which cells are doing it and how we can intervene on those. So that's at at a sort of broad level, what what we work on and, and what a lot of the field works on, actually, it's fascinating, and it is a completely different direction from where we had previously been looking at issues regarding weight gain. The consequences of weight gain, people go, well, why do we bother? I mean, I'm happy, you know, I like myself, and I don't care. There are consequences, though, to carrying too much weight. First, let me ask a common question, and it may not be generally obesity, but just belly fat. People have gained belly fat as they age, and there's been some information that that's not a good type of fat to have. Do you want to just elucidate on that before we go into the consequences of obesity and its effect on health? Yeah, they're kind of tied together. So I think answering one answers both in a way. Again, there's always nuance to these things, and it can be controversial. But in general, fat as a total amount, so the higher level, when, which usually correlates somewhat with BMI, so that's why we use that measure. So as BMI rises to the obese level, generally speaking, that level means that the person is carrying more body fat. It doesn't tell us where it is, is associated with the risks of a number of diseases. And to answer what you just asked specifically, there's evidence, very strong evidence, that where you carry the fat matters as well. And specifically, if you carry it in the central area, so what you're calling belly fat, the technical term is visceral fat. So fat that's sort of in the abdominal cavity and around those organs um, is more harmful. So leads to more of the diseases that we know are associated with excess fat are typically associated with those folks who carry that fat centrally. The converse is subcutaneous fat, so fat that lives kind of under the skin. And that's more classically around the hips and the buttocks and so on, 
that's thought to be less harmful in some situations, even possibly protective. And that's this sort of, again, terms that are commonly thought of as the apple versus the pear kind of shapes, right? So the the central adiposity or the central fat shape is more harmful than the peripheral fat where it's around the hips and the buttock. That's less of a concern. That's mostly genetically determined, unfortunately. So where you carry your fat is not something that we've found a way to influence yet. And so, for example, there are populations, particularly Asian populations, so East Asians and Southeast Asians, that have been studied, and it's found that they have higher rates of disease than you would predict if you just use standard BMI criteria. So you can take a population, let's say, of Japanese individuals who have a BMI of 24, which would be considered a normal weight in our sort of the Western Caucasian normalized scale that we talked about earlier, uh, and compare them with a BMI 24 Caucasian population, and they will have much higher rates of the diseases that are associated with what we would think of as obesity. And so that was a head scratcher for a long time. And what was found once we could do techniques like CAT scans and MRIs and so on and look inside the people, what they discovered is they have a disproportionate tendency to put that fat in the central area, in the belly fat. So even though they may look thin to the eye, they have too much central fat and that is driving these problems. So where you put it actually matters in a big way, but unfortunately is not controllable. So some of the associated diseases, first would be diabetes, cardiovascular, keep going. (laughs) Yeah. So the most well-known ones, what we call the metabolic diseases. So those are diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart disease. Those are kind of the ones that we think of most directly with weight gain, but there are many others. So there's strong association with mental health problems, particularly depression, but others as well. There's also association with a number of immune conditions, such as asthma. There are associations with a number of cancers, many different cancers. You mentioned Mary Newhouser earlier. That's a lot of their work is to look at the association between weight and cancer. And Some of those cancers like breast cancer are very common. So this is a big issue. These aren't just rare cancers. It's obviously associated with joint problems and with pain associated with those things. The list is very long and sleep apnea is another one. Again, that's sort of a physical consequence. So there are many and certain lung diseases that are are related to that. There are many areas where excess fat puts you at higher risk for those conditions. It doesn't guarantee that you'll get them. So I don't want to say that, again, that this is an absolute, but it certainly raises the risk of that. When we talk about obesity-associated diseases, which is why the medical community really feels strongly that obesity should be treated as a disease itself because of these additional harms that can come, one of the questions that arises is, well, how much weight needs to be lost in order to reverse the either disease that's established or lower the risk for one that hasn't come yet. And unlike what one might think, you don't have to go back to your original normal weight. So 
what the data suggests is that really even 5 to 10% weight loss from wherever your current weight is, is sufficient to reverse a lot of things that are associated, particularly the metabolic things like cholesterol, blood pressure, diabetes, those risks start to drop off with weight loss, even at the 5% level, but certainly at the 10 or 15% level, we see a large benefit across the board. What patients want is to be exactly the weight they were in high school, you know, if they were thin in high school or to achieve a cosmetic aim. And what medicine is looking for, what the medical system is looking for is, is very different. It's a lot less. And that's why we are satisfied. We as practitioners or healthcare providers, not satisfied, but we are happy, let's say, with weight loss in that sort of 10 to 15 percent category, which you can achieve with some of the medicines that are available, whereas sometimes patients are still frustrated by that because they're not nearly at the weights that they would like to be at. There's a sort of disconnect between what their expectations are and what the medical community, which is looking at this as a health issue, not a cosmetic issue, is trying to achieve. And so, but now you're getting these new meds that are 20% where maybe both sides, you know, you're kind of achieving both or at least can potentially. Saw some statistics on the increase of health dollars towards joint replacements directly related to obesity as obesity has increased in incidence. So I know that health dollars are always scarce, but the government will look at where they're spending the money and hopefully funnel more funds towards what you're doing. Yeah, I think, you know, it's not just joint replacement. I mean, the, the, the cost is in the billions for, as it's been estimated, for how much the fact that the population has increased in weight has impacted the healthcare system. And you're right. They look at certain, you know, sort of the top culprits or the top areas that we're worried about that really are, you know, costly to people in terms of quality of life and costly to the system in terms of dollars and try to, it provides the rationale for intervention. And, and interestingly, so for example, just, you know, in our state, in Washington, if one wants to get bariatric surgery to, which is one of the approaches to um, cause sustained weight loss, and one is on public money, so the state on Medicaid, the Medicaid rules, they have decided that the two conditions that they will allow or will pay for bariatric surgery are for diabetes. So somebody who has diabetes, you know, of course they have to meet a certain weight level. So they have to be considered obese, but then that's not enough. So they need either diabetes or as you mentioned, needing a joint replacement. So those are the two that they felt reached the level where it was worth to pay for the bariatric surgery um, because of all the the benefit that will be seen by the weight loss in terms of those conditions. One can argue about the logic of that and why not other conditions and so on, but it's interesting that you pick, you mentioned that. And so clearly the people who are looking at it economically see those as two of the major areas that are impacted. We do have a GI episode with two parts. And our second part of that was with a researcher looking at microbiome. And he actually had a mother-daughter where they exchanged uh, gut flora. And I forgot who, whether the mother got the daughters or daughter got the mothers, but lost weight 
then the flora reestablished itself to the native flora and the weight came back. So there's obviously communication from the gut to the brain and the eating centers are the rest of the metabolism center. And I remember a Seattle surgical from years ago, one of your colleagues came and talked about somebody who had intestinal bypass and insulin requirements the day after dropped almost nil. I mean, there was obviously something going on there. Uh, if you want to comment on any of that, or we can skip that and move on. I mean, that's absolutely true. So, you know, we know that, and, and we haven't yet really talked about therapies, but we know that bariatric surgery, things like intestinal bypass, as well as the more modern um, sleeve uh, procedures, are the most effective method to to attain and maintain a lower body weight. So as of today, they cause the most weight loss and the most sustained weight loss. And we don't entirely know why. The simplistic idea that you're simply sort of rewiring the gut and shrinking the stomach and therefore making it so people can't eat very much physically or they don't absorb much, that's probably not the full story. That may account for some of it, but that is not the full story. And so a number of different avenues of of exploration have arisen from that, including looking at the microbiome. So these bacteria that live in the gut normally, they will shift in response to all kinds of um, interventions, including different diets, antibiotics, but also uh, bariatric surgery, for example, does shift the kinds of bacteria that live in your gut. The different populations shift in terms of which ones there are and how many of them. And we know that those bacteria, while they don't harm us, they live there in cooperation with us. It's called symbiosis. They produce factors that talk to our metabolic system. And like you said, can talk to the systems in the brain that control body weight and also talk to other, you know, non-obesity related systems that have been looked at. But we still don't know. There are reasonable studies in animal models that look at manipulating the microbiome. So changing these bacterial populations in various ways and seeing effects on body weight. And there are some early studies, like you described, more small numbers, you could argue anecdotal data that argues that something similar might occur in humans. We don't know if it really happens on a large scale. We don't know really how sustainable or sustained it is because we know the microbiome can switch based on diet. And so even if theoretically it can be changed, can it really be maintained in a new state? Like you mentioned, the flora eventually shift back, which seems to be somewhat genetically determined. So can you really change that in a permanent way? We don't know. So there's a lot of unknown pieces to that, but it's a very exciting area of an active area of research. In terms of the other aspects of intestinal or gut biology, that's another not just in terms of microbiome, but just how the intestine, which is where the nutrients come in, how that system is wired into the brain systems is also a very active area of research and trying to understand how we detect calories, how we detect different nutrients. Are those nutrients, is there sort of a calculating, an internal calculator that keeps track of things? And does that determine, you know, how much we eat or how much we burn, you know, which would make the idea of, let's say, a low carb or a low fat or some specific kind of manipulated diet, there would be more rationale 
if you understood like how these things are kept track of within the system. And it happens at the very front end with the intestine and even with taste systems of taste in the mouth, in the track all the way down, those impact how we respond in terms of how much we eat and what we burn. So all of that is still kind of in its early days in terms of our understanding. And most of it is in animal models at this phase and not as much information in terms of how it affects humans yet. Well, let's switch to a little bit, just if you could, let's say that we have a patient come to you in the clinic with a BMI that puts them in obesity. They're a new patient. Could you, without you know, putting you to too much of a task, just describe what might happen, where they would go, what you would recommend as far as treatments, how would you manage them? One thing that I've come to appreciate over my years of working in a weight clinic is that obesity is not one entity, right? Again, we use BMI, which is this very crude measure. We do that because it's easy to measure. And so you can collect it on large populations. But for individuals, it doesn't tell much of a story. And really the first step when I evaluate patients is kind of getting their story, is understanding you know, like you said, what was their parent status? What socioeconomic background did they have when they were young? When currently, you know, what has been their journey? Were they always thin as a child? And this is a later onset. Did it come after pregnancies? Or is it, have they struggled with weight all their life? Were they thin and then they quit smoking and they gained weight, which is a certain category that occurs. So there are many different stories that have to be taken into account before you can really tailor a program to an individual. So unlike many areas of medicine, this isn't a simple like, okay, you have high blood pressure, here's a high blood pressure medicine. You really have to think about what are the factors involved, both how did you get here? And then what is keeping you at the stage? And you know what have you tried? So what diets have you tried? Or what approaches have you tried? Some people haven't tried. Other people have tried almost everything. And so you have to really think outside of the box for them. And then you take a very careful diet history. You kind of look at what they're eating and what they're doing. Are there areas that are clear for intervention, like the processed food, like the sugar-sweetened beverages, or is it more complicated than that? You know, maybe they've already made those changes, so it can be a little difficult. Or perhaps their lifestyle impacts that, so their work schedule doesn't allow them to prepare their food. So they have to buy food out. And so they don't know entirely what they're eating. So there's all kinds of life circumstances that are key to keeping in mind how much, you know, do they get to make the food or is it made by a partner in the house? And is there agreement or disagreement on what's going to happen if one person's eating a certain kind of diet and the others aren't? There are a lot of factors involved. And then you know, we also work with a nutritionist to kind of, again, delve into the more micro details of how somebody is really, you know, eating and you have to take into account their culture. Are they eating certain kinds of food? And that's what they're familiar with. And then try to find ways to help them with some form of caloric restriction, right? So I am not a believer that there is one diet that is the right diet for everyone. And that is the key. And most of the science backs me up on that. So diet studies compared head to head, which aren't many, between these various diets, such as low carb, low fat, etc. And it really comes down to adherence. What can somebody stick to? And again, a lot of that is based on 
their culture, their background, their life situation, and so on. So I think it's very important to figure all that out to try to help them come up with a plan that's sustainable. Anybody can do like a keto diet, for example, which is a fairly extreme low-carb diet for a period of time, but can you do it for years? In general, the answer is no. And so we have to find ways to help people. Another diet that's particularly popular is the sort of time-restricted diet or intermittent fasting. It goes by a variety of names where you don't change what you're eating, you just change the timing. And for some people that works really well because of their work schedules or their life schedules or what have you, they're able to do that. And that compresses the amount of time they eat, compresses how much they eat essentially. And, and the data now is getting more and more compelling that really there's nothing magical about time-restricted feeding. It's really just another way to kind of restrict calories. It isn't that it switches around your microbiome in some impressive way. That does seem to happen in animals, but the human data so far is not that compelling for that idea. But for some people that works great. For other people, restricting their eating to a six-hour phase will really impact their social life, right? They can't go out now because that's not in their time window. So again, it's about coming up with a plan or some intervention on the diet side that will help because diet is a big driver of weight gain. Obviously, looking at their activity and trying to give them a prescription, a, a real specific idea for where to increase their activity levels. And that's going to depend on what they can do, right? Some people will be, you know, debilitated, have bad joints, be in a situation where they can't do a lot of activity. And so you have to focus more on diet in the beginning for them. Other people, you know, you can, they have more physical capability. And so you really try to work that into their life. Can they do it with a friend? So they meet every day or every other day to walk or whatever. So there are ways to try to build on that. There's also stimulus control. So trying to look at, do they have emotional eating? Is that one of the major components? That isn't true for everyone. So that people assume it is, but it isn't. Some people do and some people don't. And so that might require counseling or other levels of intervention. Treating sleep apnea is an important component because that definitely limits weight loss or weight maintenance. And then we start to talk about medical interventions. So pharmacology, so drugs, medicines, and there are some that we use more and more. And then of course, we can talk about surgical options as well for those who want to do that or feel like that is the best approach for them. And we can talk about the specifics if you want. Well, I think people are interested in the current pharmacology. Why don't you elaborate a little bit about the older approach and the newer approach? Right. So medicines for weight loss have been around a long time. And the issue largely has surrounded safety. So most of the limitations and what we've been able to do in terms of helping people lose weight have been problematic because if you particularly if you try to drive metabolism. So if you try to give somebody something that will make them burn more calories without worrying about what they eat, it generally drives a lot of systems in the body. So it kind of increases your heart rate, it increases your blood pressure, and over long periods of time that actually causes more harm than good. And so most of those medicines and approaches have been taken off the market because they've been shown to cause harm. And so what we're left with primarily are things that work on appetite, because that's generally safe. So if you can lower someone's appetite and just get them to eat less over time, in general, they'll lose weight in a safe way without too much concern for long-term harm. 
And so most of our meds work in that way currently. Right now, there are, are, are essentially two, you could argue three pills that are FDA approved for weight loss or that are in the major category. And they, again, are primarily appetite suppressants. One of them works to block fat uptake in the body. That one is not used all that much. It's not that convenient. It's actually over the counter, but it's fairly expensive and you have to take it with every meal. So it's not that convenient. But the others work by suppressing appetite. They are really combinations of old generic medicines, but they were recombined to try to lower the doses that were needed and limit the side effects and increase the power of the medicines. And they work reasonably well. They're not super potent, but they work reasonably well. So you get about 6% to 10% weight loss with these meds in general. That was in studies where they're being compared with a placebo group that's also losing some weight. So in the real world context, you probably lose a little bit more. So that's one set of meds. And then the other are these injectable meds that are fall into a category of what are called GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide 1 agonists that were originally developed for diabetes care, but have been shown to cause substantial weight loss. And some of the first generation of those meds again, would get you in the sort of 6 to 10% range. But the newest generation of these meds were now upwards of 15%. And the very newest one that was approved for diabetes in June of 2022, so just not even a year ago, and is expected to be approved for non-diabetic weight loss in the next probably three to six months, that one is upwards of 20%, which is really impressive. So you're getting into the range of bariatric surgery now with just a single agent. And these are weekly injections, so it's not that bad. They have potential side effects, primarily nausea and gastrointestinal side effects, but a lot of people don't get those or they get better over time. And so they've really taken off. In fact, it's become a fad, unfortunately, medicine, so much so that there's actually a national shortage in these medicines because so many people are using them off-label. They're just getting them and paying for them out of pocket to lose weight, even if they don't need to. One thing that must be said that has to be put out there that a lot of people have difficulty wrapping their head around, even providers do, is that weight loss meds are not like antibiotics. They do not cure something so that, you know, you take it for two weeks, you cure your infection, you're done. You take a weight loss med and you lose weight, the expectation is if you stop that medication, the weight will come back. So it's very hard for people to kind of psychologically accept this idea that I'm at a certain weight now and I get to my target weight. So now I see myself as thin or I am medically thin. Why am I taking a medicine anymore? I'm done. I got where I want to be. I'll watch my diet, but I'm done. And the problem is that that medicine contributed in some large part to that weight loss. Maybe not all of it, but a lot of it. And there's no reason to believe that it's changed your biology in some way that is permanent. In fact, we know from washout studies that are required by the FDA that when you stop the medicine, you wash out the medicine, in general, the weight comes back. And so these are a commitment. And in the same way that if you take a cholesterol med and it lowers your cholesterol, you you don't get to a normal cholesterol and say, okay, now I'm going to stop. Or normal blood pressure, now I'm going to stop. That would you would never consider that, right? But here people always do like, do I have to take this forever? And the short answer, unfortunately, is yes, that is the expectation. 
there are exceptions. There are people who can manage off the meds to maintain at least some of that weight loss, but that is the exception that's not expected. So it's a commitment somebody has to be willing to make and is saying, you know, this is what I need for my health in collaboration with your doctor. But the new meds are really exciting for those who choose to go that route. The meds are really exciting in that they're very effective. The huge problem is that they're very expensive and weight loss as a category is generally excluded completely from insurances. There are very few insurances that cover medications for weight loss, almost none. And so it's a real struggle. And so an out-of-pocket, the injectable meds are over $1,000 a month. So it's really cost prohibitive. As a public health approach to solving this crisis, you can see that there's a problem there financially. If three quarters of the population could qualify, but these are $1,000 a month meds, that's just not realistic. So we still need more approaches. Just to name the earlier meds, not the ones that increase metabolism, but the satiety blocking and reformulated generics put together. Could you give an example of what one of those would be? The two pills are called Qsimia and Contrave. Qsimia is a combo of fentermine and topiramate, and Contrave is a combination of naltrexone and bupropion. All of those are generic meds. So the Qsimia, fentermine is a stimulant. It's been used for years. It was part of the Fenfen combo back in the 80s. It's not the Fen that was a problem. That was dexfenfluramine and why that was eventually taken off the market. But fentermine is relatively safe. It's a stimulant, so it's sort of in the category like caffeine, but at a low level, so it's not addictive or problematic and doesn't like increase heart rate in a dangerous way. And topiramate is a drug that used to be used for epilepsy, is now mostly used for migraine prevention. It's actually pretty good for that. But it also has always been known to have this side effect, actually, of weight loss. And so when they combine them, you get this increased weight loss and you limit some of the side effects of those two meds. Similarly, Contrave, which is naltrexone and bupropion, bupropion is well known as Wellbutrin, which is a common antidepressant, causes a little bit of weight loss. Naltrexone is a drug often used for alcohol and opiate abuse. It tends to help with those addictions, but it also limits appetite. And again, in combination, seems to cause some weight loss. And again, you limit the side effects a bit by having lower doses of both that work in combo. But they do have a lot of side effects. There's a lot of issues with these medications. They're both controlled substances to some extent, so they need special prescriptions like, you know, the one good thing in some ways about these meds is because they're generics, you can sort of hand make the drugs by giving the generic forms of them to people rather than prescribing the trade official trade name version. Because again, the official trade name versions, which are generally not covered by insurance are a hundred to three hundred dollars a month. Whereas the generics are, you know, ten dollars a month. So it's like you can kind of basically make your own version of this. The injectables are called, so for weight specifically, there's two, one called Saxenda and one called Wigovi or Laraglutide, which is Saxenda and Semaglutide, which is Wigovi. And it's really that last one, Wigovi or Semaglutide, that's really taken off and has about 15% weight loss. Unfortunately, it's the exact same chemical as a drug called Ozempic, which is for diabetes. And that's the one that's really taken off as the fad, because if you can say you have diabetes, or maybe you do, it gets covered by insurance. Whereas Wigovi, which is the identical chemical, but marketed under a different name, same company, same everything, 
it isn't covered. So it's a little bit tricky, but there was shortages of both. That seems to be getting a little bit better, but I still get calls every day, every week from patients that can't get these meds. So those are really effective, but very expensive, unfortunately. And then for people who are candidates for surgery, who would you move towards that category? Yeah, that's a that's a really tough one, right? So technically speaking, you need to have a BMI over 40 or a BMI over 35 with the addition of some kind of comorbidity like diabetes or, or something like that that is expected to be improved by it. That's sort of the official criteria. Again, different insurances set different structures. And I mentioned the Medicaid, the Washington state Medicaid parameters earlier. So um, so this isn't for everyone. There's obviously risks involved in a surgery. You know, that's not something to be taken lightly. The actual surgical risks and the recovery risks are quite low these days. The, the procedures are done really very well, especially at what are called centers of excellence. So different places can get that designation. Um, and it really does give you pretty sustained 25, 30% weight loss in most people for many years and can eliminate or massively reduce a lot of those diseases that are associated with obesity. So in some ways, everyone is a candidate in a way if, if they meet those criteria, but it really is about discussing with them, are you, do you want to make this change? Because it, it fundamentally changes your relationship to food. It's sort of a permanent approach, right? And so, you know, there's a lot of thought that has to go into that decision-making. Not everyone is a good surgical candidate just because they might have lung disease or heart disease that limits their ability. The other thing I should say, and maybe you'll have a whole segment on this, but it's really shifted. So we used to do what are called Roux-en-Y gastric bypasses or what the public generally knows as a gastric bypass. And those, like I said, give you 30, even sometimes 35, 40% weight loss. So they're really effective, but it's a pretty invasive surgery. You're rewiring the intestines in a large way. That's really gone down tremendously in terms of what's done. Now, most procedures are sleeves. And what a sleeve is essentially taking your stomach, which is sort of kidney bean shaped and turning it into a tube, which is a very simple procedure. Still in theory, irreversible, but a very simple procedure. The recovery is very fast. Usually you're out of the hospital by a day or two at the most. So it's actually pretty easy and you get not quite as good weight loss, but pretty close with the sleeve and far less of the issues associated with it. And so, you know, there is an argument that that's a very effective method. And, you know, it's underutilized and that's fair, but I don't push people to do it. I think it's a shared decision-making process. If a listener is interested in that direction, they should visit, you know, a, a major weight loss center would probably be associated with one of the centers of excellence for that type of surgery or be referred to that. I think that's important. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, again, the outcomes in general have gotten much better across the board, but the complications of surgery are lower at places that do a lot of these procedures. The more they do, the better they get at them, the lower the complication rates are. And so it is worth, you know, looking at that if you're going to consider these kinds of procedures. And in general, I would recommend going to a center of excellence if that's an option as opposed to somewhere that maybe doesn't have the same volume and the same experience. 
So it's a big decision. So I, I would do your homework basically and, and look into who's going to do this and what follow-up you will have, especially if it's a gastric bypass. Those require a little bit more follow-up in terms of making sure that everything is healthy and everything's healing. You need to take certain vitamins and and certain protein supplements because of the change in the intestine. And you need good follow-up. And a lot of places just do your surgery and never see you again. And that's not a good situation to be in. Well, as we wrap up, I always like to provide listeners with some resources. If you have some of your favorites, go ahead and name them. The resources that I can tell you about are mostly on the basic science side. So they're more about kind of body weight regulation and thinking about how body weight works under normal circumstances or is controlled and how some of the theories for where obesity comes from. So Michael Schwartz, my former mentor, has written many very good reviews. So Schwartz, S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z, which you can just Google. He's written many very high-level reviews that really detail how the system works and, and some of the theories behind how it might go bad or not bad, I shouldn't say that, how the system doesn't protect you in the way you might expect it to from weight gain. And I think Kevin Hall, who is a researcher at the NIH, is really good if one wants to look at that. Some of the studies I mentioned about like highly processed foods and looking at different diets and how they affect um, metabolism and just kind of really looking at that more the exercise expenditure side of the equation. Those are very good resources, both that are easily found on the web. Anya Jastrobov is one of the top researchers on these new forms of medicines that we talked about at the end. These medicines that were originally developed for diabetes that have shown real promise in you know reducing weight in non-diabetics as well. She's really one of the top researchers in that area and has written and given, you know, there's a lot of videos available. Um, she's given a lot of podcasts as well that is really very good at talking through how these things work. The Obesity Society, which is a whole sort of scientific body that represents obesity research all the way from the most clinical, like really, you know, school programs and involve, you know, at the public health level in developing school programs or trying to get good quality food into what are called food deserts. So what you described at the very beginning of low socioeconomic neighborhoods, research on that all the way to the most molecular basic, like how does the system work in a, in an animal? The obesity society has a very well-developed website that has lots of links to guidelines, to diet, to the research, to the public health side, to the socioeconomic side. So that's always a good resource. The CDC is another place that has some sort of statistics and basic ideas. So those are all good places to start. One of my favorites is a Canadian Obesity Society, or network, actually. You can Google that. and They have just a lot of nice information laid out, well laid out, and really aimed at public consumption. When we go to put this on the webpage, would you be able to spell the researcher who is one of the leading uh, researchers? Jastrobov? Yeah, it's J-A-S-T-R-E-B-O-F-F, I believe. I think that's how it's spelled. So yeah, Anya, A-N-I-A, -I, -A, I think it's I-A. Yeah, she's at Yale. She's a really young, up-and-coming clinical 
obesity researcher, but she's very much in the public eye as far as these new meds, because she was the lead author on a New England Journal paper for that sort of third gen, if you will, the latest generation of these new meds. She was the lead author on the paper that showed this like 25% weight loss, 20, 25% weight loss. So um, so she's given a lot of talks on the topic and they're all over the web. So it's it's easy to find. There are many other sources, but of course, but unfortunately, there are also many sources that are questionable. So that makes it hard to filter the good from the less good. And, you know, that's why going to some of these like societies, like you mentioned, the Canadian one, they're linked to each other as well. But the Canadian Obesity Network and the, the Obesity Society, which is sort of a U.S. based although it's international, but the U.S. based, they're pretty good at, you know, keeping it to the the stuff that we at least have some established science for. And they have a lot of links to other areas. So, Yeah, it's good to review things that are legitimate there where somebody's not just trying to sell their particular product. Yeah, obesity particularly. I mean, so many of these people have written books and it doesn't mean that they're you know, some of the best people have written books too, and some of the people whose opinions I really trust. So it's not a given that if they've got a book, that means don't trust them. But it makes it hard to know, right? There's sort of an automatic concern that there's a conflict of interest here. So so yeah, it gets pretty tricky to filter through all the nutrition stuff. And there's just so much out there. And even I, you know, struggle to try to figure out what's real and what isn't. So it's hard. And no one has the time to go to all the primary literature on every single point. So, you know, it's tough. But again, some of these societies and groups really try to collate, you know, or curate a collection of of information at the level of researchers, but also, like you said, at the level of the lay public. So, Well, this has really been a very interesting and exciting episode. So much has changed in obesity and our understanding and treatment. And I particularly thank you for spending this time with us. Dr. Josh Thaler, truly you're knowledgeable and present in such a nice, concise way. I hope people who either have concerns about their weight or know somebody, whether it's a friend, family member, or coworker, will refer them to this episode. Uh, There's a lot of information here. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate it. And obviously, you know, make decisions in consultation with healthcare professionals. Try not to do this completely solo. And there's lots of structure out there to help people. And you should, you know, seek that help if that's what will make you successful in your journey. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, 
visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.